Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really good to see you. We are in week two of our series, What Did Jesus Do? And what we're discovering is that Jesus came to earth not just with a life-changing message, but with a life-changing method. It wasn't just what he, said, what he did and what he said. It was how he did those things. And last week, we learned that Jesus came to enlist people. And we saw that how Jesus enlisted the few. He chose a few men that he would pour his life into. He enlisted the fringe. He chose those who were overlooked by many others. And he enlisted the faithful, those who would go and do for others what he had done for them. And that was last week. And this morning, we're going to learn that Jesus didn't just sign people up. He didn't just enlist them, that he also equipped them. Uh, I've read a lot of books on leadership and, and, and volunteerism. And one of the biggest frustrations when somebody volunteers for something is when they are asked to do something, but they are not given clear direction on what exactly it is they're supposed to do. It, it is one of the greatest sources of frustration when someone says, I need you to do something, but they don't understand what it is that they're supposed to do. And Jesus here, we see with his life and with his ministry, he is all about providing clarity for people as to what he's asking them to do, and he's equipping them for the work that he's called them to do. And we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 10, and beginning in verse 1, it says that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then it lists their names, and we'll skip down to verse 5, and it says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And what we're going to see together this morning is that Jesus equipped his followers by giving them three very important gifts. And many of us in this place today and watching online, we have decided that we want to follow Jesus, that we want to serve him. How many of you have learned that it's not the easiest path always? Sometimes following Jesus is very difficult. I was speaking with someone just before service this morning that said, ever since I've committed my life to follow Jesus, certain things have become more difficult for me. And uh, if you and I are going to have any chance of following Jesus, I think we have to receive these same three gifts that his disciples received. And the first one is the gift of clarity, the gift of clarity. Now, those of you that know me well know that one of my pet peeves is unclear communication. It drives me crazy when someone is trying to say something to me and I don't understand what they're trying to say. When someone gives me instructions on how to do something, anyone ever have the experience of opening up a, a, a toy that you're supposed to put together for your kids or a piece of furniture that you're supposed to put together for your house and the instructions were, you're like, who put this, who wrote these instructions? You can't, it looks like it's a totally different thing that they're trying to get you to put together. That, that moment of frustration, whether it's a bad connection, whatever it is, unclear communication is one of my biggest pet peeves. One of the biggest mysteries for me living in this area my whole life has been how come there's zero cell phone coverage by John Glenn in 57. That is my least favorite place to drive. Every time I drive through there, I know that no matter what happens, I'm about to lose a connection with somebody. Whatever was, whatever was coming in is no longer coming in. And that stuff drives me crazy. And Jesus, interestingly enough, even though a lot of his teachings left people kind of scratching their heads, <laughs> including his disciples, he was tremendously Tremendously clear on what mattered most. Tremendously clear on his mission. 
And we saw that Jesus said to them in verse 7, as you go, proclaim, and he summarized everything that he was about in one sentence, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, I came so that the kingdom of heaven would be established here on earth. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is the reign and rule of God over all of creation. So Jesus is saying, my mission, my reason for being here is to establish the rightful reign and rule of a God to whom each of us is accountable. And everything Jesus did was about the kingdom. He said it in other ways. In fact, here's five other things real quick that he said in the Gospels. In John 18, 37, he said, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus came to speak the truth. In Mark 1.38, he said, I came here to preach to many people. In Luke 19.10, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And it's interesting because in that verse it says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save not those who are lost, but that which is lost. Which means that Jesus didn't just come to save us as human beings, but he came to restore everything that's been lost. Not just our souls, but the brokenness of creation and the ways in which the world works. He came to restore it all. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came so that you might have life and the best, fullest type of life. Jesus' mission, he was so clear. And his mission was to inaugurate and establish the kingdom of God here on earth through a new way of loving and a new way of living. And his teachings and his healings and his miracles gave people a glimpse of the coming kingdom. And when you study Jesus and the way in which he equipped his disciples, one of the things that you'll notice is that he was constantly reminding them of what his true mission was because, you know, his followers had lots of ideas of what his mission should be. And I don't think that's just an issue back then. (laughs) I think it's still a big issue today. Lots of Christians, lots of churchgoers, lots of disciples have their own personal agenda, their own idea of what Jesus' mission should be. And Jesus always had to confront consistently and constantly confront his disciples and say, you've got it wrong. He said, I'm here to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he comes up up to the disciples and what are they arguing over? Who's the greatest? Which of us is most important? James and John trying to position themselves to sit at his right hand side when the kingdom is established here on earth. They had their own agenda. How about Jesus saying he desires that all would be saved and that none would perish, and yet the disciples are trying to keep the children and the young ones away from being near him. They didn't understand the kingdom. How about Jesus saying, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, and the disciples are saying, hey, should we call fire down on these people? Do you see the ways in which the mission that Jesus came to do here of establishing the kingdom of God in our midst was constantly being confronted, not just by his enemies, but by his followers, by those closest to him. But Jesus was clear on his mission. Jesus' enemies, you know, try to distract him. They'd come and they'd try to trap him and ask him hard questions. They're always trying to trap him, trap him into saying something that would be political, that could be used against him, something defi- divisive that could, that, could, that could make him look bad. They were trying to pull him into fruitless debates that didn't really matter. And Jesus was a master at sidestepping every single one of those traps. And I wonder sometimes as his followers if we're as good at sidestepping some of those traps as much as we are just jumping into them with everything we got. Jesus' followers tried to distract him with their own idea of a Messiah, but Jesus kept saying, I'm here because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is being established here in our midst. 
And that idea of fighting for the kingdom of God was not foreign to the Jewish people. In fact, they all kind of had different approaches to establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it was in heaven. And there's four very distinct groups of people, and I want to touch on this very briefly. And because of our time limitations and my own lack of really um, expertise, this is going to be a gross simplification, but I think it could help us this morning. There are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. We know a lot about the Pharisees because they seem to always be interacting with Jesus. But the Pharisees were also trying to establish the kingdom of God. But their way of doing it was to be the morality police. They wanted to add rules and regulations to clarify who was in and who was out. And they're trying to protect a certain sense of life. And in doing so, here's what happens. They kept adding rules and regulations that God never himself actually gave. And they kept trying to draw the lines tighter and tighter and tighter so they could feel better and better and better about who was out there and who was in there and in here. And that was one way that, that the people of God back then were trying to establish the kingdom was by drawing those lines of who was good and who was bad. Then there was the Sadducees, who were kind of on the other end of the spectrum from the Pharisees. They would compromise. They, they, their hearts were captured by power and influence, and so they would sort of, um, uh, they would uh, uh, link up with other leaders in the day who were not Jewish leaders. They, they kind of would compromise their values and their beliefs. They would lose their identity and their mission to get access to those in power. Then there were the Essenes, and the Essenes were those who would isolate from the world. They would say, oh, it's just too evil. What's the point? We're going to just form our own little hidden community, and we're going to live out in the desert. We're going to isolate. We're going to hide, and we're going to disengage from culture altogether. And then there were the Zealots, and these were you know, amongst Jesus' followers, James and Thaddeus. These were people who thought aggressive opposition to the Romans was the way forward. Violence and vengeance. Use the same tools they use against them. Now, this is 2,000 years ago, but you know, right, those four camps still exist in Christianity today. They're everywhere. The Pharisees, the morality police, the Sadducees, those who will compromise and give up on their faith to get access to power and influence and celebrity and fame. The Essenes, those who just throw their hands up and say, forget it, it's not even worth it. I'm going to disengage completely and hide from the big bad world. And the Zealots, those who say, if we could just maybe use their tools against them, we can see the kingdom of God established. Now, all of us lean towards one of those four camps, I think. And you know which one you're in by the one that you can make the best case for. <laughs> which of those four do you feel like you can most easily justify? Yes, I know that's not right, but they had whatever one that is, that's probably your biggest temptation. See, what I'm saying is, is that as Jesus is trying to give us the gift of clarity, there's so many things trying to give us distractions. And I'm more convinced than ever that we are a distracted church. God's people are distracted by now. And here's the danger of distractions. Distractions are not unimportant things. Distractions are often important things, but they're not the primary thing. And so we have to be careful and say, God, you've given us a clear mission. I was reading this um, Instagram post the other day. A guy was saying, you know, we say right now we're in unprecedented times, right, because of what we're going through as a world. And he just was pushing back on that and saying, no, if you study the history, this is not an unprecedented time. This has happened before over and over. The, the, the tumult, the, the revolt, everything that's happening, even the pandemic, like this is not unprecedented. We feel like it's unprecedented because it's unprecedented in our lifetime. But if you study history, this happens over and over. And he says, what do we do in the midst of these, quote, unquote, unprecedented times? He said, nothing changes. We love our enemies. 
We pray for those who persecute us. We're slow to speak. We're slow to anger. We're quick to listen. And anytime we're in the midst of uncertain times and we're saying, how do we live in these times? One of the best things we can do as followers of Jesus is revisit the ethics of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus teach us to treat others, to talk to others, to love others, to serve others? He says, as Christians, we're free from the bondage of the world having to have our opinion on every single thing. We're free from that. And there's a way forward that doesn't make us the Essenes where we disengage, but allows us to engage in a way that is uniquely Christian, unique to the kingdom of God. And there's so many things that are distracting us that I think are causing literally people in the church, not just this church, but I mean the church, the capital C church, to break fellowship with each other over things that are not primary. And I think it breaks the heart of God. I genuinely do. And so Jesus is trying to give his followers still the gift of clarity. And I feel like right now the church needs a major dose of clarity. What matters most? I remember hearing Bill Kirk say years ago, 100 years from now, 100 years from now, the only thing that will matter to anyone in this room is who's in heaven and who isn't. And if it's going to matter then, it better matter now. And it's always stuck with me because I thought, what a perspective to have. A hundred years from now, none of us are going to care about the things that eat us up day after day and consume our minds and consume our social media feeds and, and the hours that we spend pouring over stuff to make our arguments stronger. We're going to feel silly when we look back. Again, not unimportant, but not primary. Not what Jesus came to do. He came to show us a whole new way of life. And we need the light of Jesus at work within us. Just yesterday in our Read Together plan as a church, we were in John chapter 11, the, the chapter where Jesus heals, uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. And early in the chapter in verse 10, he says, if you're walking in darkness, you'll stumble unless you have light inside of you. And I never had noticed that before. Jesus didn't say, unless you have light around you, you'll stumble. Jesus said, you need the light inside of you. Why? Because the world is dark. There is a lot of darkness out there. And if we look out there for the light, we're going to stumble. But inside us, not in a new agey way, but in a way that Jesus Christ's very presence dwells within his, his people, there's light within us to give us clarity even in times of confusion and chaos. And one thing that Christians should be able to do is keep their heads when everyone else is losing theirs. And be able to have this sense of confidence in who Christ is and what he's doing, the sovereignty of God, the certainty of the kingdom, and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand what's going on, but I trust you, and I will not be distracted by the enemy from what you've called me to do. The gift of clarity. The second thing here that Jesus gives his disciples is the gift of time. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, makes this argument that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at anything. And a lot of people have pushed back on that number over time and said, well, it's not just practice, it's the quality of practice, it's, it's who's helping you with your practice, it's good coaching, it's, it's good feet. And that's, it's all true, but here's his point, and I think he's right. If you wanna be great at something, it takes a lot of time. Outside of people who are just uh, natural geniuses, you have to put a lot of work in. Anything that any of you in this room this morning are great at, you've put hours into it to get there. Lot and lot of time. Jesus gave these 12 men a lot of time. 80,000 hours is the lowest estimate of how much time these men spent with Jesus 
together. 80,000 hours. In fact, there was a tweet by a pastor named uh, Rich Viotis from New York City, and he said if it was eight hours a day, just eight hours a day that Jesus spent with his disciples, and I think it was probably more like 16 hours a day that he was with them, but eight hours a day, 80,000 hours a week, or sorry, 80,000 hours he poured into each of those 12 disciples, and still they had major gaps in their understanding. Still they didn't understand what he was about, And, and the point of the tweet was this, how can we in our arrogance think that one hour a week on Sundays is going to help us Follow Jesus the way that we're supposed to. A lot of time. We need a lot of time. And Jesus gave them a lot of time. And he gave them time in three different ways. And he gave them access. He gave them, first off, let's look at this. He gave them instruction. We know this, that Jesus was a master teacher. He taught through stories. Jesus taught through questions. He, he would pull them the 12 aside afterwards. And they'd say, Jesus, we didn't understand that story. And he would tell them what it meant. They would ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And in the passage that we read here this morning from Matthew chapter 10, right after, right where we ended, Jesus goes on to give them very specific, specific instructions on how they should do their ministry. And when they go into a town that receives them, they should live this way. And when they go into a place that doesn't receive them, they should do this. Jesus was very specific. He was a gifted teacher. He instructed them. The second thing that he did in his time with them is, was a gift of demonstration. He showed them what to do and how to do it. In fact, in verse 7, when he says, or verse 8, when he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons, those four things. The disciples had seen Jesus do all four of those things already. Jesus wasn't saying, do something that you haven't already seen me do. He was saying, I have demonstrated for you how to do this. Now you go and do the same. Watch me do this, then you do it, and then let's talk about it. And then the third thing here is the gift of impartation, because, you know, some things are caught more than they're taught. And just being around people. How many of you have learned that sometimes just being around someone in crisis, you catch some of who they are? The best gift that leaders can give to young leaders is access to their lives. Watch me when I'm struggling. Watch me when I'm making hard decisions. Watch me when I'm attacked. Watch how I navigate these moments. Because when you begin to be around people, in this, and the disciples saw Jesus in all sorts of moments. They saw him grieve the, the execution of his cousin. They saw him deal with the rejection of his own family. They saw him try to be stoned by his hometown. And then they saw great moments as well. And Jesus, in those moments, was imparting to them his values, his character, the humility of Jesus, and the kindness of Jesus. Listen, we need a life that abides in Jesus with the support of one another. If we're going to do what Jesus did, we need time with him, lots of time. Time in his word, time in prayer, time in his presence, gathering together Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, whenever we can, we need that time. And if we're going to do what Jesus did, we need to give time to others as well. See, this is not just about, Jesus, give me your time. This is about, Jesus, how do I give my time away? And the question before is, before we get to our last point this morning, is how much time do you spend with Jesus? And I don't mean to ask this to you as a legalistic burden. See, when I was young, I always thought of, my spiritual disciplines is ways that I would prove to God how good I am. And now I've learned that spiritual disciplines is not about me reminding God of how good I am, because I'm not good, but me reminding myself of how good God is. And with that slight change in my thinking, I began to realize I need to be in God's word because I forget about his goodness. My heart is so easily captured by the goodness of other things, the goodness of lesser things. We need that time. We need that formative time. 
I'm glad you're here this Sunday, and, I, and I'm, I'm grateful for people who carve out time on a Sunday morning. But how do we go beyond the Sunday morning and get the time that we need with Jesus? And then also, how much time do we spend on ourselves versus how much time do we spend on others? I know we're busy. I know our lives are full, but Jesus has called us to something more than the American dream. <laughs> do you believe that? Jesus has called us something more than to having a couple cars and a, and a beautiful home and a, and a retirement plan. Nothing wrong with any of that, but that is not, please, that's not the sum of our life. That is not why he came to earth and gave his life for us. He wants us to give our lives away like he did. So how do we give that time away? And that could be time to your children. That could be time to your family. I'm not always talking about time to other people, but also to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends. Last thing that we're going to talk about this morning is that Jesus gave them the gift of discomfort. <laughs> and this is probably doesn't sound like a gift. In fact, um, we talk here a lot about heart idols. And I know that one of my biggest challenges is the idol of comfort. I, I just I love comfort. I don't love being uncomfortable. And if there's an easy path, I, I tend to choose it. So it's a weakness uh, of mine that God's given me grace for and helping me in. But this idea that Jesus consistently, consistently made his disciples uncomfortable. Can't you get that when you read the Gospels? He had them on their heels all the time. And there's three ways, I think, in which Jesus gave them the gift of discomfort. Number one, by being totally unpredictable. Jesus, nobody could understand what he, was, what he said, what he did, who he spent his time with. The way he talked to people in power, the way he talked to people who had no power, how he lived, how he loved, who he forgave. I mean, it was nothing like what they expected. Brian Post, a pastor, tweeted this this week. He said, from the beginning until the ascension, the disciples were consistently and repeatedly surprised and confused by Jesus. Over and over again, they were confounded by his unpredictability. And then this is the sentence that really stuck out to me. Assuming Jesus will stay inside your rigid box is the beginning of much deception. Assuming Jesus will stay inside your rigid box of this is who he likes and this is who he doesn't like and this is who he loves and this is who he doesn't love. This is who he wants and this is who he doesn't want. It will put you on the path of deception. He was radically unpredictable and it was, it was uncomfortable for the disciples. Secondly, the gift of discomfort was by being honest. I mean, he, he would rebuke them. He called, he called Peter Satan in front of his friends. That's the worst, right? He, he, he would call them out when they struggled. He was honest with them. And, and I believe that Jesus still desires to be honest with you and I. And the way that he does it is through the word of God as a mirror to ourselves. Jesus came, you know, when he walked the earth, it's interesting. When you watch how Jesus interacted with people who knew they were lost, versus people who thought they were found, he had very different ways of approaching the religious prideful and the irreligious shamed. And to the irreligious shamed woman caught in adultery, he was like a window through which she could see the grace available to her. But to the religious Pharisees, he was like a mirror so that they could see the ugliness and the whitewashed nature of their tombs of their lives. Jesus was strikingly honest, and it made people uncomfortable. And then the last thing is that Jesus was, gave the gift of discomfort by being empowering. I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to sing in a minute. You know, let's go back to this Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 16. This is what Jesus says to them 
This is not like inspirational leadership talk right here. He's going to send the 12 out to do work. And here's what he says. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If I was one of the ones being sent out, I'd be like, I don't love that metaphor. (laughs) I don't think the sheep will do well in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent and of doves, as doves. And he goes on to say, beware of men, for they will, not they might, but they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Here's what strikes me about what Jesus did in equipping his disciples. He sent them out before they were ready. He really did. He sent them out before they understood his true mission. He sent them out before they were headed all together. And sometimes I think in the church we think, well, let's get you all taught up and learned up and educated and so that you know everything about the Bible and then you can do something for Jesus. And Jesus didn't wait for them to have it all together. Part of his strategic equipping strategy was to send people out way before he should have sent them out. And if you've developed it all as a person, as a leader, you've done it in a time where you were doing something you didn't feel ready to do. Anyone ever been there? You've been asked to do something. You said, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. I'm not even qualified. But because you had to do it, you stepped in and you began to grow. In fact, I was thinking about this this week and I thought to myself, if you and I wait till we're comfortable in our own abilities to step out and do what God has called us to do, then we're probably depending on ourselves more than we're depending on God. God doesn't care. This doesn't, I don't like this because what I said earlier about my my heart idol, but God doesn't care much about our comfort. He just doesn't seem to care about how comfortable we are. God is more concerned about his kingdom than your comfort. God is more concerned about his lost children than your comfort. God is more concerned about growing you than your comfort. He's more concerned about forming you into the image of his son than he is about your comfort. God is more concerned about sending you and spending you for his glory than he is about your comfort. And if we're going to be equipped to do the work that Jesus is calling us to do as individuals and as a church, we have to receive these three gifts. Jesus, give me the gift of clarity in this chaotic, distracting season of life where there's a hundred ways to disagree with each other. And there's so many things to give our energy and emotions to. Clarify for me what you want from my life. The gift of clarity. Help us, God. God, we pray this morning that you would give us the gift of time and that we position ourselves in your word and in prayer. We're not going to grow without abiding in you. Nothing we do apart from you lasts. And then lastly, God, would you give us the gift of discomfort? It's a bold prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. But move us from where we are for your glory and for the good of people. Help us, God. Let's stand together this morning and sing.